The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 23 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So you're listening to the show. You like cybersecurity news. You like cybersecurity just like me. Maybe you want to catch all the recaps of the show. Uh, Maybe you want to see them in order. Uh, I think what you need to do is you need to go to the cybersecurity hub at www.cshub.com and check it out because you'll not only find weekly recaps of the show, but you'll also find out other current and up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news to keep you informed on what the hell's going on out there. So the Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. So the media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, if you want to check out some pretty cool articles, maybe read some dope white papers, or just check out a recap of tonight's show and get some other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So Debbie Christofferson was great last week. If you missed it and you want to hear what one of the board of directors for the Information Systems Security Association, that's the ISSA, has to say about the progress we've made in cyber or managing risk according to what kind of business you're in or get an opinion on the talent crisis from a real cybersecurity professional, I urge you to find your favorite playback medium, find Task Force 7, subscribe to the show. Please, please, please. That's important. It's very important, folks, that you subscribe to the show when you go to the playback mediums and get updates about new shows when they come out. So once you subscribe, look for the last episode named Apple is no longer the champion of privacy it once claimed it was. And Debbie Christofferson appears in the second and third segments of the show. She was great. Can't wait to have her back. So you might ask, where can I go find Task Force 7 Radio on social media and on playback mediums? Well, I'll tell you, you can find all prior Task Force 7 Radio episodes for playback on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, and Player.fm. We're everywhere. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. So you can also learn all about TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. Especially check us out on Twitter because we've got a lot of stuff going on there. Lots of information about TF7, our shows, our guests, and just cybersecurity in general. So check us out on Twitter at TF7 Radio so you can keep up with the information about the show. So we've got a great show for you tonight. I have EJ Hilbert with me right now. EJ is a former FBI special agent who specialized in tracking down some of the world's most prolific cyber criminals. EJ was fighting the good fight as an FBI agent at the same time I was working as a Secret Service agent back in the day. So that's back in the day when there was no template on how to investigate these types of things and no template how to invest these criminals or these organizations. You had to figure it out yourself. So he was one of the guys that was blazing the trail ahead. So he served as the case agent for investigations into the intrusions of some of the largest companies in the world. 
and he served on the first joint Russian-U.S. criminal working group, and he has trained law enforcement officers throughout the world to do the same thing. He spent years with the FBI chasing al-Qaeda and working counterterrorism via their online communication networks, eventually bringing treason charges against the American al-Qaeda spokesman, Adam Kadan. So we're lucky to have this patriot on the show today. I'm very excited. EJ, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So let's get let's start right from the beginning of your of your career. And people are always asking me about my career choices and my career path and how I pivoted to get to where I am today. And I know we have a lot of listeners out there who benefit from learning how to navigate the system to get a job. Right. So because in the end, that's what that's what's important to people. People want good jobs. They want to do noble things. They they want to optimize their earning potential and they, and they want to provide for their family. So you started out, I understand, as a high school teacher. So. Tell us, how did you go from being a high school teacher to being an FBI agent on the front lines doing battle with the evils in the world? <laughs> I started as a high school teacher. Um, when I graduated from high school, I said I wanted to be in the DEA or the FBI. I grew up in Southern California. I'm a Marine brat. And um, I went off to college and uh, went through a lot of different majors, eventually ended up on history. But when I got out of college, there was a hiring freeze with the FBI. So I've got a history degree. Uh, I like talking with people. I went into teaching. So I was a high school teacher, uh, did about six years teaching high school. And then um, it came down to a year. I was actually teaching yearbook. And it was when you could um, start taking, we started digitizing yearbooks and taking the design from an actual paper format and moving it over to a, um, to a digital format. So I brought in some yearbooks from high school. And my friends had written things like, you know, good luck in the FBI, good luck in the DEA, and so on. And honestly, my students turned to me and said, hey, Hill, what's this about? What are you, what are you, what's this about being in the FBI and so on? I said, hey, when I was your age, that was my dream. And honestly, my students turned to me and said, then you're a hypocrite. And that took me back for a second. They said, look, you're t- making us chase our dreams, go for um, scholarships to various different schools, chase things down. I had a couple of baseball players who had a shot at, at scholarships, and you're not doing it. And you know what? They were right. Um, that year I had already decided to leave that high school. Uh, I was going to teach somewhere else or take a different job. So I applied to the FBI. Uh, I got an, inter- an interim job, uh, working for a company that actually creates the, uh, the black boxes and aircraft. But ultimately, uh, I got lucky and a year after I applied, I got into the FBI, which is a feat in and of itself because it usually takes a couple of years to get through the, the interview and the hiring process. And I just got lucky. It was, it was, uh, meant to be. So, so once you got there, I mean, once you go to the FBI, did you go there knowing that you wanted to be a, a cybercrime agent? No, and that's the funny thing. I, I went into the FBI not knowing what I wanted to work. Um, look, I got my first computer when I was 12. Um, I wanted to stop bad guys. I guess I kind of wanted to be like a James Bond type, uh, something of that nature. I had a very, I had an interest in hacking and I, I was, Technically, I was kind of a hacker before it was illegal. I mean, I learned how to code. I, I had, you know, the old dial-up modem. I had a Commodore 64 computer that I traded up to an Apple IIe. But what ended up happening in the Bureau is after I went through training in Quantico, I ended up out in the L.A. field office. And then out of L.A. field office, I ended up in what's called a resident agency, a, a small office down in Orange County. And I was sitting complaint desk, which all new agents do, and you have to deal with all the phone calls come in and all the legitimate problems, but also the crazies who come in. And um, one of the individuals called in, and it was a, a case of an intruder into a computer network. They were extorting the owners of the network, saying, you know, give us 
$1,000 or we'll release all the stolen credit cards or all the credit cards of your clients online. Um, I wrote it all up, gave it to my supervisor, and the supervisor said, hey, uh, you know, we really don't do this here. Uh, I'll send it up to L.A. And I said, you know what? I'd like to try. Um, it's here in Orange County. I'd love this opportunity. And I fell into the case. And from there, it just it just kept going. That And that one case, which um, is um, uh, uh, Alexei Ivanov and Vasily Gorshkov are two individuals that were uh, lured from the from Russia into the United States. And um, they were responsible for a number of hackings that that one complaint ended up being a six-year case. And in fact, a portion of that case is still going, not the same bad guys, but the, the operations and the methodologies that we developed, uh, as you pointed out. Nobody knew how to do it back then. We were, we were flying by the seat of our pants, and uh, there was coordination between the FBI and the Secret Service. Each group had their own versions. So uh, yeah, that, that was the, uh, a groundbreaking case to start a lot of things going forward. So you said that you were, were you teaching yourself how to code or did you do that in college? You learned No, no, no. I, I took one coding class. It was a C++ class. And honestly, I couldn't understand a single thing that the teacher was telling me. <laughs> so everything else was taught. Um, from way back, my dad used to get me a uh, computer coding magazine or computer magazine right when they first came out. So I learned basic from there. But as I got into the bureau and we started working these cases, it was less about actually coding. It was more about manipulating individuals and understanding what they were doing um, and understanding, being able to read what the systems were putting out, logs and stuff of that nature, but the fraud and the manipulations beyond it. Uh, remember, when this all started, the, the, the bureau, the agency, the, uh, the service, all of them were working from a, a reactive perspective uh, after the crime occurred. Um, proactive only began in the late, well, early 2000s, but it was several years after we'd started this work. So, yeah, it was all self-taught. So do you consider yourself a technologist then? And, and, and do you think people or professionals have to be technologists to be cyber cybersecurity professionals? Uh, it def depends on how you define technologists. You want to give me give me a little more on what your what your definition is. Well, I guess uh, I don't have any specific definition when I think of a technologist. I do think about someone who's got a bunch of engineering books sitting on their shelf when you walk in their office. So, no, no. A bunch of coding books. I mean, you know, uh, you, you know, what do you think? I mean, you, you have to have a computer science degree to be successful. Let's put it that no, way. No, that, that, that's the better question with regards to that. No, you don't. Uh, look, if you're in – there are various different aspects of, of cyber um, and Truthfully, cyber is is really just a marketing term. It basically means anything that connects to or or deals with the internet or a computer. Um, and you can't be a professional or you can't be an expert in all of those things, uh, from databases to networking to you know uh, endpoint protections and so on. Uh, I am an individual who reads a lot, spends a lot of time learning different things, um, but the tech pieces of it. My skills have dropped a lot in the last few years. Um, there was a requirement at one point that I had to be very technical, but I'm no longer that way. It's understanding the interconnectivity between people and machine, the interconnectivity between machine and company, um, and how all of those things can be manipulated. Um, and don't get me wrong, you have, you have to understand the tech, but not to the point where you're literally rewriting the code every single day or breaking it down every single day. It's understanding how those things work together and being that, that translator from, from geek to common speak and from common speak back to geek. How about EJ, how about, how about certifications? I mean, I get people hitting me up all the time on social media 
and, and other platforms and they want to know, hey, look, do, what kind of certifications do I need to break into the cybersecurity space? I mean, like someone, for instance, hit me up last week. They, had, they have a criminal justice degree. They work in security and they're looking to get a certification in cybersecurity to move. Now, we, I both, you know, I know there's a lot of different types of certifications, but what's your thoughts on, on that type of thing? In general, well, look, certifications are an opportunity for somebody to put a label or some of some letters after their name that says that they've they've had specialized training in a particular area. Uh, when I got out of the bureau about ten years ago, CISSPs were just becoming a big deal. Uh, everybody was talking about them. It was a big point to try to get one of these things. And honestly, I went and got a CISSP, um, and I I studied, and it was not that difficult uh, in the grand scheme, given that we. The kind of work that you and I have been doing along the line, we, we didn't, it wasn't that difficult. Now, what we have here is this, well, coding and certain aspects of cyber are almost becoming almost trade school-like. Um, there, you, there's no such a thing as a degree in cybersecurity. Uh, you can get a master's in it, but trying to get the basic degree in it, you cannot. And that's where this certification programs come into play. They're there to try to help people point out that they have a specialty in a particular area without saying they're an ex- expert across the board. Um, if somebody wants to get into a particular area of computers, if you're really looking to focus on that and that area alone, then those certifications absolutely are, are beneficial for you. If you're looking to do kind of what I do, which is more of a Renaissance man approach across to the whole of the scene, um, certifications, are not really beneficial. They don't help my my cause at all, and they haven't really advanced my career at all. So, what kind of what kind of training do FBI agents get to become a, a cybercrime agent? What do, what do they have to well, go through? Remember when, like we said, when we first started doing this type of stuff, there was no such thing as formalized training. There was there there was Unix for investigators. There was uh, <laughs> advanced forensics, which was basically CART computer um, uh, emergency team and so on um you would learn for you would learn forensics say and uh ftk or n case uh the bureau even tried to come up with its own program at one point in time and realized that was stupid and went back to n case and ftk or access data um in terms of other training you can go out and get it i actually uh was lucky because this was brand new and the cyber division had just been created so i started the bureau in 1999 uh, the cyber uh, division for the FBI was created in 2000 or 2001. Um, I was a guinea pig, one of the first agents, so I got to go and take classes at various different places to see how this may come into play. So um, one of my teachers was actually actually Kevin Mandiant of Mandiant. Um, Kevin and Curtis Rose and Matt uh, Pepe, they were all former Air Force OSI guys. And at the time, the Air Force were the were the team that was responsible for for cybersecurity in the military. So they had left and were out teaching. So, you know, uh, advanced intrusion techniques, SQL injection techniques, um, social engineering and manipulation, which is kind of a, a build off of your uh, interrogation and interviewing techniques. All of those are skill sets that you could take and learn from the FBI. Now, um, FBI carries or covers um, cybersecurity in the actual um, academy. When I was going through, there was no such thing as cybersecurity or cyber investigations. Um, now it's actually, I think it's a, a one-week course that uh, everybody has to take no matter what the agent is going to be assigned to when they're done. So when they're at Quantico during their 22 weeks of training, 
before they get out into the field. Um, cyber is covered and includes databases, basic operations, basic forensics, basic collection information. That's interesting how we evolved from no training for the experts to now basic training exactly. for everybody, at least at a minimum, right? So, you know, having said that, what do you think? Tell me about the FBI. Is the FBI equipped to battle the cyber threats we face today? You know, the, when I left the FBI 10 years ago, uh, cyber became the number, one of the number one concerns. Uh, it, was, it was counterterrorism and cyber were the top two on the, on the, on the board. Are they equipped? The problem is you've you got to define what cyber is. Um, look, the FBI is a law enforcement agency. It's not their job to help you protect your network or your systems. That's not what they're there for. They're, they're reactive. Um, when a crime occurs, they come in and they identify who's behind it. And don't get me wrong, very, very good at doing that. Um, tracking all the way back, understanding all the stuff, collecting the evidence that's associated with it. People forget that uh, it doesn't matter if you're on a computer or, or if you're um, – doing crime in, quote, the real world, you always leave uh, clues behind. You always have a signature of the way you do things. So if the role of the FBI now is to help protect companies, no, it's not their job. It wasn't what they were set up to do. Um, and quite honestly, there's been a number of companies while I was with the Bureau and since I've left the Bureau. And one of the questions is, do you want to get law enforcement involved? And the answer is nine times out of 10, no, because they don't want to showcase the problems they already have. They don't want to showcase that they missed this, that, or the other thing. They don't want something to go public. Um, and if that's the case, law enforcement being the Secret Service, the FBI, local police, if companies aren't willing to come forward and showcase what's happening, there's no way they're going to address it. Uh, and let me touch on one other thing that we forget about in the cyber realm. There are two different types of cyber crime. There's cyber-enabled and there's cyber-dependent. Cyber-dependent are only those crimes that are specifically related to a computer. So we're talking about DDoS attacks. We're talking about viruses or malware. We're talking about any kind of disruption to the system. So Shamoon and Flame and, and um, uh, some, of the, some of the other ones that come into, into that play. The next piece is your cyber-enabled crime. That's all your fraud. That's all your manipulations. That's all your stalking and your data stealing and uh, any of the other crimes that go from it. Instead of coming in and stealing a file cabinet full of files at, a, an, at an office location, they're just doing it online. Those two crimes are, are investigated two completely separate ways. One is simply following the money, tracking the crimes and the money back to the original individuals that are using it. And that's the, that's the enabled crime. The dependent crime requires you to be able to see the system, make sure that system has been set up properly by the individuals who are running it, make sure that the logs and all the other uh, information is, is intact. And if the bad guys are bouncing from, uh, through multiple locations around the world, making sure that those systems have that same kind of stuff in play so that we can attribute it back all the way to them. The other side of it is, of those two, the so cyber-dependent crime oftentimes does not cause the same amount of damage as the cyber-enabled crime. Cyber-dependent crime, they knock out a server, they knock down a website or so on, leave out DDoS attacks and the loss of business. But if you, if you stick with just the technical aspects of it, what does it take to, to burn down a, a server and rebuild it? Some man hours, maybe you're offline for a couple hours. It's a, a lot smaller, impactful crime. But that 
what it leads to is that fraud that what they can do with the data that they've stolen, the manipulations of the data that they've stolen for espionage or whatever factors. Yeah. So EJ, we have so much to talk about today. We're going to take a quick break, but before we do, I just want to remind our audience that we're getting closer. We're getting closer to launching the world's premier cybersecurity professional network. That's Task Force Seven coming at you. You're not going to want to be a, not want to be a part of this professional network of the top cybersecurity professionals in the world. I guarantee it. Tune in over the next couple of months. I'm going to be telling you more about this much needed and much awaited for network. We really, really need this, folks. And as a cybersecurity community. I'm really excited about this business venture because it's the right thing to do for the right reasons. It's something that Jamie Diamond preached to me all the time when I was at J.P. Morgan Chase, doing the right things for the right reasons all the time. We're going to solve some problems together. I promise you that. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes for some words from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, former FBI agent E.J. Hobart, to hear all about his experiences at the FBI, working some of the Bureau's largest cybercrime and counterterrorism cases. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Managing to Make a Difference, every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, former FBI cybercrime agent, E.J. Helbert. So, E.J., I want to get some of your, I want to go over some of your work with the FBI. And you are very well known for some of the work you do with an FBI informant named Maxim Popov. So, tell us about that case and how it all started and how you got involved and what went down. It's a, it's a long story, but I'll make it as short as possible here. The basics is that we started focusing on a case in which a guy by the name of Alexei Ivanov and Vasily Gorshkov hacked a number of companies across the United States. We lured them into uh, a undercover operation that came over from Russia to um, up to the Seattle area, and we were able to get those guys arrested and deal with them. And we started connecting the dots between them and several others online. One of those guys happened to be Maxim Popov, or, or Max, uh, who was actually being worked by another um, field office for the FBI out of Washington. 
they had started talking with him. And Max is one of those guys who thought he could talk his way out of anything. He agreed to actually meet with the FBI in London and then actually to come to the United States. Uh, and he did. He met with the, uh, the legal attache in London. He flew to the United States on a separate meeting. He decided he would uh, serve time for, for his crimes, which was actually hacking into Western Union. And all of this relates to a group called Carter Planet. And I can't go into it um, in depth now, but Carter Planet was an online bazaar run by a guy by the name of Dmitry Golubov. And both Popov, Ivanov, Gorshkov, all of these guys were all players in this particular location. So Popov comes to the United States. They're trying to run him 24 by 7, run an operation similar to um, – Al Mariachi or, or uh, Kumajani. Um, you can, your listeners can look those guys up. They'll find very interesting stories around there. Uh, but in the end, Popoff ended up going to jail in uh, Kansas City. He was in jail for less than a year when he got his defense attorney to get in touch with the FBI and, says, and say, look, I can't do this anymore. I can't sit in jail. Um, honestly, I don't think he was expecting what an American jail is like. And he, we worked out a deal. He would come to Southern California. We housed him at a local jail. And each day we would go and take him out, take him to a secure location. And he and I would sit side by side at computers with a team of a couple of other agents behind us. And we would communicate with hackers around the world uh, buying stolen goods. They would talk about how they broke into company X, Y, or Z. And we would talk them into giving up their information about it, name the company, buy their product, buy their stolen goods, and then we could notify the company and let them know when, when intrusions had occurred and try to help secure some systems. So that's how the system so, came to play. Go ahead. So so you mentioned Carter Planet, and there's a, there's a lot of other uh, organizations out there that, that law enforcement's dealing with. So for our audiences who are not familiar with how cyber-organized crime groups actually work, can you just give them a brief overview of, of how these gangs are organized and how they operate? Yeah, so Carter Planet, Shadow Crew, um, another one called Dark Profits, even the modern-day Silk Road, if you've been reading the newspapers or, or gone through the storylines. Basically, these are online bazaars where individuals will offer up their goods or services that could be stolen credit cards. It could be stolen financial records. It could be an exploit to break into systems. Um, it could be uh, offering to teach you how to code in order to do certain things. And in the case of Carter Planet, it was set up with a, very much like a mafia, uh, an Italian mafia with a godfather, which guy's name was Script, um, Dmitry Golubov. Um, and then he had his consigliaries, he had his enforcers, and then he had his vendors all the way down. And your attempts to move up the chain, become a better member in standing on that group. Our role, or the government's role in this, we were uh, a vendor that purchased stuff. So anything you had to sell, we would buy uh, if it was valuable enough to us. So in this case, the bad guys would comment what they had to sell. They would, because of our reputation being good and that we actually paid on time, they would have to give us a sample of that. And we would test out that sample. And if the sample tested out proper, then we would go ahead and make a deal. Uh, if you think of it like a movie drug deal where the they roll in with the bags of you know fake cocaine or whatever, and somebody sticks a knife in and takes, takes it, same kind of thing, but in the online world. 
So, right. and, and it's all done through websites and chat channels and, and back channels that you have to either be invited into or find. They sit in the, in the dark web, um, areas of the web that are not necessarily searched by Google or, or Bing or any of the other search engines. You have to know where to go and where to look, um, or you have to know people to talk to. So how did you come into contact with Max? I mean, this whole story reads like a spy novel, but initially, what was that contact like? You know, it, it was it was interesting. Um, like I said, Max was one of those guys who thought he could talk his way out of anything. And uh, honestly, because of my time as a high school teacher, I was pretty good at manipulating kids uh, into getting them <laughs> to do stuff, I'll be quite honest. So we, I was sitting in a, in a, in a chat room. Uh, under one of my code names. Uh, that code name is Idolin. It's been burned several times, so it's out there in the web. And we, we were crossing paths and started offering up product, and it went back and forth. And eventually, you know, he, he started talking about wanting to be clean or help the FBI or something of that nature. So I changed tax and moved out of that code name into a different code name and introduced myself. Uh, basically, I had to be schizophrenic. I had to be two or three different people at a time to uh, to try to get this guy to start talking. But once he did, uh, and once he came through the whole process here, and I wasn't the only one. There were other agents, both in the in the service and in the bureau, that were talking with this guy. Um, he was working with a field, uh, agent out of uh, Washington, um, and they struck up a, a conversation or a relationship. And when he finally came to work with us. We sat in the courthouse in Kansas City, in the federal courthouse. We had a long kind of heart-to-heart conversation. And the simple fact is, anytime you run a source, and this is a, a, a factor that many in law enforcement, take that back. This is a factor that many who prosecute cases don't take into account, is that it's a game when you're running a source. Their job is to try to minimize the impact or to do something that will um, make it better for them, make their life better, make their, their, uh, their time in prison short and something of that nature. As a law enforcement officer, your job is to try to get them to do everything you need, to, need them to do. So it is a huge, huge manipulation daily. Um, befriending them, maybe. Um, trying to let them think that you really care about them internally and externally. Um, getting them to want to do the right thing because fear as a factor only works for a short time. Fear burns out. People, people will do things under, out of fear for a very short period of time. But after that fear runs out and you really want them to do good, to do good work, you have to find another motivation. So Max and I had that motivation. He was almost as if he was a student of mine um, and it worked out very well for us. So how, how, how important was he to the, this cyber criminal world? How big of a, a deal was it to have him as an informant? He wasn't as big as he claimed to be, but he had the connections. Uh, he knew who to talk to and who the right people were. But more importantly, because he was a native Russian and, and Ukrainian speaker, and most of the bad guys that we were dealing with at the time were Eastern European hackers. Um, and if, if you go through the, the breakdown, um, Carter Planet started as a Russian hacking group. Um, they, in fact, they couldn't even attack anybody within the former Russian states. That was their agreed to uh, mentality. They eventually started expanding, allowing Americans and other countries into the mix. And then um, a group of Americans split off and they created the group called Shadow Crew, which the, uh, the uh, Secret Service ha- actually helped bring down or t- actually did bring down. Um, 
And then Dark Prophet was another one of these things where they split off. So Max knew the right people. He had been a player long enough that he had the he understood who was who. Um, and he had the opportunity to talk uh, online with them and use the code words. So to say he was a big deal is just to feed his ego. But, to, but from a, a government perspective, we had nobody. Um, back to our original discussion, we, you know, we're flying by the seat of our pants trying to figure out how to do this. And one of the things was we weren't allowed to work in Russia. We weren't allowed to work outside the United States. So we had to go through constant battles of, well, is this person really overseas? Are they here in the U.S.? Um, and we, we were able to manipulate that. So, But the time with Max, uh, over 2,500 consensual recordings. We identified over 200 separate hackers and over 1,500 separate companies that got hacked into. And that was a nine-month period of undercover work. That's a lot of undercover work in nine months. I mean, so you guys called the, the, the operation Ant City. We did. So there was, <laughs> it was weird. Uh, we were just setting everything up and uniquely the equipment that we were utilizing was actually equipment that was seized from uh, a, uh, a illegal or pirated software uh, gang. They had something somewhere close to 90 computers that they were running, uh, copying and burning Ill uh, illegal software. Um, so we were able to seize those computers. And one piece of game that we found on a, on a particular computer was a weird video game in which you were holding a micro or I'm sorry, you were holding a magnifying glass and you were like burning things on a map, uh, you know, like a road or a tree or a, a car. Uh, and it was called Ant City. And as we started talking about this, uh, we're like, well, that's what we're doing. We're putting everybody under a microscope and we're going to burn the ones that we can burn and we're going to burn and we're going to keep the other ones uh, nice and safe. And it just, the name just stuck. Um, you know, cool code names don't come along very often. I mean, you end up with things like Rocket Flare or Sparkles or something because some paper pusher back at headquarters decides on those forms. So we got the opportunity and that was our name for it. Um, the official code name was not Ant City, but that's the one that we used. It's funny, man. It's funny how these things come about. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I worked the Operation Firewall case with a few guys uh, in Jersey City and, uh, you know, with Kumbanjani. And so I, I know exactly what you're talking about when, when, you, when you go over some of this stuff. So Max, Max goes back to, back to Russia, back to the Ukraine wherever he went, he leaves the United States, right? And under some of these circumstances, I, I'd like you to tell us yeah. what happened with that. And then, then he eventually calls you up and says, and you learn from him that there's some FBI target list out there of, of criminals that are compromised in, in their hands and in, in the hands of the cyber underworld. So how did all that happen? How did that play out? Well, you nailed it right there. That's the short version. He, he does his time served. He gets put on probation in the United States, but, um, Gets, uh, gets the U.S. Attorney uh, Office to agree to let him go home to the Ukraine. And I can talk about this now because the, uh, the case has been removed. It was all under seal and it no longer is. Okay. Um, he, um, he goes back to the Ukraine and he never returns to the United States. While he's in the Ukraine, he I mean, Did anybody think he was coming back? <sighs> that's a, that's a, a point of contention. Uh, it was very clear he wasn't coming back. Um, more importantly, clear he was you. <laughs> it was clear to me, it was clear to the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was clear to everybody else, except for the fact that because he was given probation, um, that, was not, that was not something that could be discussed. The truth is, he should have never been given probation because he was a foreign citizen in the United States. Uh, he, was, he should have been removed from the United States as soon as his time in prison was done, and that didn't occur. So, you know, in the grand scheme, 
he did what was supposed to happen. He returned back to his home. Um, but the, the, the debate went on because this will tie in later. Um, as this case plays through, Max sets up his own shop in the Ukraine doing exactly what we were doing with Ant City. He, he set up an opportunity of, of identifying victim companies, notifying those victim companies of the intrusions, and then some would say extorting them, some would say you know offering up a service, whatever it may be, letting them know that, uh, hey, pay me and I will um, either delete the information from you and so on. And, and let me say this here. At no point in time does, was Max a saint. At no point in time, even after he left, was he necessarily no longer a criminal element. Um, Max was Max. Max was going to take advantage of every situation he can. And if you understand that in the eyes of many Eastern European hackers, um, cybercrime is a victimless crime. Nobody really gets hurt. They're not hurting people. They're hurting organizations, banks and governments and so on. And when you grow up in a, in a world where the government controls everything and takes all of your money, if you're stealing from a bank that's controlled by a government, you're just taking back your own money. That's really their mentality. So, 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 so the United States Attorney's Office becomes suspicious of Max after this goes down. And they, they, they called you up and asked him, asked you for his real identity, and then you did, you decided not to give it to him. What what, no, what happened? I, what happened? With that? <laughs> it wasn't about deciding not to give it to him. So what ended up happening? Max was working two aspects of it. Uh, there was an intrusion of the company called EMC in the Boston area uh, that Max was doing his thing with, and then there was intrusion into FBI.gov, which is the email service for the FBI. As you pointed out, there was a document that was on the on the email servers that listed the names of age or of um, sources that were working both for the Secret Service and the FBI. Um, it was a deconfliction list to make sure that we weren't targeting right. each other's people. Yeah. Max's name was on there, so we're working two separate cases. You're working the EMC case and the FBI intrusion case. I get called back to headquarters to work the FBI intrusion case. Um, I'm told keep my mouth shut, don't talk about anything. But so when this Boston case comes into play and the EMC case comes in, U.S. Attorney wants me to give up the name, the real name of, of in this case, a guy by the name of Dennis Pinhouse. I am specifically told, no, I cannot do that by DOJ and by the FBI. Oh, okay. the, the U.S. Attorney didn't like that idea. And if you go back to the Boston situation with the FBI, there was right. an individual, the, the Whitey Bulger case. Yep. Uh, the U.S. Attorney in in, uh, in Boston accused me of being another Whitey Bulger, and um, I was like, "Look, I'm sitting in a room with the legal counsel for the FBI, the unit chiefs, assistant directors, all of them, and they're the ones telling me to keep my mouth shut." So I did. Uh, I did exactly what I was instructed to do. So people don't understand that the craziness that goes that goes into some of these investigations, especially back then when this was so, uh, such uncharted territory. Yeah. Right. Well, you're talking about, I mean, that case file was thousands of pages. Uh, you're talking about an undercover operation with international uh, co connections to it. I'd actually traveled to Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus and worked with the law enforcement agents in those areas trying to find the bad guys. Uh, this was the Wild West, uh, and it was very difficult for somebody who wasn't in the heart of it or somebody who hadn't actually run an, uh, a source in this manner to understand what was really happening. So. so with all this turmoil going on relative to your case with Popov, you, you actually change squads and then you leave the cybercrime unit to, to start 
investigating al-Qaeda and counterterrorism. Tell us how this happened. Yeah. What was that like? Well, credit to the Bureau. They, 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 they saw the writing on the wall. They understood what was going on. And my bosses came to me and said, look, EJ, we want you to go ahead and continue what you're doing in the cyber realm, but we're going to take you out of cyber crime of, the, of this nature. Uh, there's just too much hot water here. Um, e, the intrusion of FBI.gov was actually an intrusion into AT&T. So now you've got some serious bigwigs involved in that. We actually got a call from the, uh, from the vice president's office asking us to, to stop hammering AT&T over and over again, that they would get us the information if you would just calm down a little bit. Uh, EMC, uh, you know, their, their CEO was a former ambassador to Ireland of the George, uh, George uh, Bush Sr. So we got a lot of political power coming into play. And the Bureau simply said, look, the case is going to keep going. Uh, you know, we've, we've stopped the intrusion into FBI.gov. The EMC matter had been addressed. Uh, EJ, we're just going to have you move over to counterterror. Now, what we'd like you to do is, since you've been so prolific at uh, breaking into these various different groups online in the hacking world, um, we're going to have you do the same thing. So I took on the persona of a, of all things, a Chechnyan kid who had been forced by his parents to move to the United States. Uh, I hated it here. All this is my cover. My name was Hassan. Uh, I hated it in the U.S., and I wanted to turn, return to my Muslim roots. Um, I spoke enough Russian that I could type Russian online. I spoke enough Arabic that I could speak a little bit of um, – I could speak with the, the Muslim individuals that I was trying to talk to. And honestly, for about a year and a half, my job was to infiltrate groups online. And I'll say this. I had to piss off a lot of very, very nice people around the world that had nothing to do so that I could find the radicals, the freaks. Um, but m my cover was what ended up being the same as that of the Boston Bombers. Um, my cover had come out. I had done this years before the Boston Bomber boys did what they did, but that's exactly the role I was playing online. And you can imagine the, the fallout when the Boston bombing occurred and my bosses heard that that was my cover before. Uh, they're like, how did you know this? How, how, how could you come up with this type of stuff? And right. it was just the world we lived in. So, but yeah, I got to work uh, uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, I got to work the Adam Gadon case, which was based in, in Southern California anyways. He was a, uh, a kid of um, Jewish and Christian background with a very ecumenical parents. Uh, Gadon is actually supposed to be for Gideon, uh, as in the sword of Gideon from the Bible. Uh, he ended up hooking up at, uh, with a couple of uh, madrasas or schools in the, in the Orange County area, uh, which at the time was a big funding location for some of the stuff going on in the Middle East. Um, he then got, went over to um, Jordan and Syria. He got tied into a few other things. And next thing you know, he shows up as the, uh, as the mouthpiece for Al-Qaeda uh, in terms of making videos in support of attacking Americans and, and, all, and the attacks not only here, but also the... Um, uh, the seven seven oh seven attacks in uh, in London. So, all right. So, look, I hate to pause it right here, but we're yeah. gonna have to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. So, don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from former FBI agent E.J. Hilbert on his work fighting terror and his subsequent experiences in the private sector. After these short messages, you're listening to Task Force Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. 
Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Managing to make a difference every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our guest, former FBI agent E.J. Helbert. So, EJ, we were talking about counterterrorism and working in the, FB, in, in the FBI. Were you on JTTF? Is that, is that what you were doing? Is that what you were assigned to? Yeah, well, uh, unofficially, uh, there wasn't a JTTF to start off with uh, when I first started the work. But, yes, it became a member of the JTTF, particularly around the Adam Gadon case and then several others that occurred down in Orange County that I still can't talk about. So, yeah. So, so in general, in general, what's it like working – JTTF for the FBI, and especially with you know in the cyber realm. Yeah, the Joint Terrorism Task Force. The whole point around that is to is the opportunity to share information, um, and you know there's a lot of red tape in the world, and there's a lot of oh we can't do this, you can't do that. Having the ability to call up a local police officer or another uh, government agency and just openly share uh, information um, is key. To, it's key to any investigation, and that's what the JTTF was created for, um, to make sure that we could share the information that we were doing. Now, there are certain cases that you don't talk about because the, the information didn't pertain to anybody around here, um, um, and not here being Southern California. But uh, if they did pertain, we had that open communication. So that was that, that's what that was about. And we'll put aside all the... TV stuff about how the, you know, the Bureau hates local cops and local cops hate the Bureau. And, right. and so, I, I mean, honestly, when, when you're doing the same job, um, look, there were times when I was back sitting complaint duty where, where I tell the craziest to call it the secret service because it was their job and they sat, you know, two blocks away from me. So I'd give them their phone numbers uh, and the service would do the same to us. It was a good ribbing that went through it. But when you're, when you're all combined to do one job, you work together and the, the animosity goes out the door. You're a team and that's the end of it. So you're very successful in the, in the cyber, cyber, in the cyber space. And, and this, this is your dream come true of being an FBI yeah. agent. Yeah. And you're very successful as a counterterrorism agent. You work in the JTTF. But you end up leaving just like a lot of us do. And I, I think I, I lasted about, I think it was five years. Um, I don't know exactly how many years you put in. But you ended up making that transition. Why did you quit? What happened? I, I, I quit because I lost faith in the, uh, in the Department of Justice. That case that we were talking about where we're ta- uh, with regards to Max Popoff, um, that investigation, the Bureau 
uh, has a basically a six month to a year investigative process. This one went on for five years. Uh, I was given a promotion and then it was taken back. I was given a number of awards and they were taken back. People don't realize in the, in the FBI, you don't get overtime. Um, you get awards uh, that would increase the amount of money you make or, or maybe a time off or something. So we had a case where I had a, a guy who was planning an attack. I had, was running a source inside a jail, another situation. I had wired him up. I'd go in about two in the morning every morning and we'd go get the, the recordings back from him. And the case was given an award um, by the Bureau and by the U.S. Attorney's Office. My whole team received awards and mine was not presented to me. And when you start hearing that, and I started digging into it, why is this the case? It came down that the Department of Justice was, quote, investigating me for criminal activity. Um, and everything was paused. I was told by the Bureau, just sit back, don't do anything, relax, you know, chill for a little while. This will all go uh, by the wayside. But that's not the kind of person I am. I, I can't do that. So I packed it up and left. And in the end, all of the case was baloney. Uh, it was all proven that I had done nothing wrong. Uh, it was an ego thing by the by the part of the U.S. Attorney's Office, or particularly this U.S. Attorney, and I just couldn't do it anymore. So I've moved into, you know, the private space. I've worked for a lot of different companies. Uh, I've been with uh, I was with MySpace when they were big. Um, dealt with a lot of hackers and spammers and bad guys there. Actually, got in pretty good with the group Anonymous via that one. Um, I've been with Kroll uh, both here in the United States and across Europe and the Middle East. Um, and Africa, and I've been with PW with PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, doing work with them, and I'm currently uh, in transition. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. I, I want to get to that before we run out of time. Sure. I want to ask you: You leave the FBI because you learn that there's this open criminal investigation yep. on you by the, by the DOJ that's hampering your progress yep. and and your, your career as an FBI agent, and it turns out that. They even send agents out to your job, your private sector job, to interview you. Now, yeah. I've had this as a police officer, as a former police officer, and as a, as a former federal agent, you get interviewed a lot, yeah. uh, you know, for a variety of different reasons, right? I mean, but this was after you left, you knew there was a criminal investigation. What was that like for you? You know, what? It, what the hard part about it is I was literally in trial prep for a trial for uh, MySpace. We were suing a number of spammers for $120 million, $140 million. And I get a call in the middle of it that the uh, Office of the Inspector General is looking for me. And I'm thinking, okay, they've just got a simple question or it was related to some case that I'd worked because even after I left the Bureau, I was still able to help out law enforcement in various different ways. Um, I still had a good reputation with a lot of individuals. So they showed up at my office and they told me basically that I was going to be indicted and that I could come on down and do an interview and go from there. Just for the record, and this is law enforcement to the rest of the world, if you ever get the opportunity to be interviewed by law enforcement, make sure you have a lawyer present. That's just the way it is. Um, our job is to manipulate you and get you to talk, um, and your answer should always be to wait for a lawyer. But it was, it was stressful, um, and I'll be honest, this whole situation almost cost me my marriage. Um, we, were, we were in a very tough time trying to figure all of this out. Um, and you know, what can I say? What can I say? What can I share with my family? Uh, I I actually hired a former, uh, United States attorney to represent me. Um, he agreed. We worked with the potential prosecutor's office and they were given a period of time and nothing ever came out of it. 
uh, the, the uh, statute of limitations came and went. Uh, and if you fast forward another year after that, my new boss at Cole ends up being one of the AUSAs who had to decide whether or not I could be indicted at, at uh, FBI, or I'm sorry, he was a member of DOJ. And um, he knew the whole case. He still ended up being my boss. And uh, he would be the one that also uh, recommend me taking the uh, opportunity to go overseas. So I'm going to assume he thought I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think he would have given me that opportunity. So. But EJ, the guys that don't do anything, you know, yeah. this is being on the job, right? The guys that don't do anything, they never get in any trouble. Right. No one ever asks them any questions. It's yeah. the guys that are going out there that are trying to, you know, engage the bad guys in a way that never been done before. And, and with crimes that I've really been prosecuted before this, right, yeah. this time. And it's just a it's just a different it's just a different time. I think, you know, uh, people don't understand how stressful a law enforcement job can be. Yeah, it's, um, it's incredible. And, and it's the old thing, you know. Uh, big cases, big problems, little cases, That's little right. problems. You know, How many times have you heard that? <laughs> and in my, because I was at a resident agency, so you get to work more than just the, 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 the cases that you're assigned to or the work you're assigned to. Um, I had, if you work a 20-year career in the FBI, you may end up with three major cases. These are cases where the FBI headquarters is involved. You're reporting to the director or your case is being reported to the director every day. In my time in the FBI, uh, I worked just under eight years in the FBI. I had six major cases. Um, the, the Carter Planet case being one of them, the Adam Gadon case being one of them. I also worked the kidnap and murder of a little girl named Samantha Runyon in the area. I worked um, a, um, the LAX um, shooter, the guy who went and shot up the LL ticket counter right after 9-11. And I worked 9-11. I was involved in, in a large portion of the cases out here, as well as getting to travel I mean, I was in the 2004 Olympic Games in, in Athens. I was sent there to do that. I, I have lived a blessed and, and uh, unique life in the world that I got to do those jobs. So good luck, bad luck. Um, I don't know what it is. Um, I wouldn't change it for the world um, other than, you know, I'd like to be able to make things right sometimes with regards to, with regards to my name or with regards to my former um, colleagues because when you come under investigation in the FBI, all of your colleagues are told that they can't speak with you or they risk being under investigation as well. Right. And right. Uh, it's just a bad world. So so, so Popov, let's go back to him. He, he's involved in some of the breaches uh, that he was actually reporting Mm -hmm. to the FBI and to other companies, pretending to be informing the FBI of these breaches while he's, while he's back home and informing other companies of their victimization while collecting or, or attempting to collect payment from these companies to ensure their information wasn't utilized in the criminal underground and, and dark web and such, right? So Popov allegedly later admitted that the, to some news source that he was actually in on the FBI hack himself. And so why do you think people react differently when an FBI informant or a Secret Service informant like like Kumbanjani yeah. is discovered to have committed additional crimes, I mean, why do you think they act any differently than any other informant in the world? Which there's, there's there's millions of them, right? There's you know all over law enforcement everywhere. There's, there's informants, but if it's an FBI informant or a Secret Service informant that commits a crime, all of a sudden it's it's totally different. People look upon it differently. <sighs> You know, what's funny is I think that people don't understand the concept that because they're an informant, they're a criminal. Uh, that's, that's just right. a simple fact. But they think that somehow that we have a special way of collecting and controlling them. And the truth is you don't. Uh, look, there's bad apples in every, in every batch, no matter what. 
Um, I guess part of it is just because of the name. Um, part of it is because you think that there's unlimited resources associated with it, and that's just not the case. I point this out to a lot of people. They're like, oh, you know, the FBI can do anything. You know, there's there's 35,000 police, police officers in New York City. Um, you know, rank and file police officers carrying their guns. There are 12,000 FBI agents worldwide in 56 different field offices and in 50 different countries around the world. So you have one third the number of individuals covering a hundred times the, the space, a thousand times the space. Um, and sometimes, you know, they just want to think that we can do no wrong. And unfortunately, in certain areas, you know, there's only a couple of crimes that, that a mistake will cost people their lives. Terrorism is one of those. Uh, crimes against children is another one of those. All the other uh, crimes out there, ultimately, every single day is not somebody's life on the line. But those two uh, crimes against children and, and terrorism, that's that's not the case. So even, even the drug space, right? So the drug space, there's, yeah. there's uh, before I said millions of informants, yeah. obviously millions is an exaggeration. It's meant to just be a lot, right? There's, yeah. there's a lot of informants that are helping uh, drug enforcement agents and police officers. And there's, uh, like you just said, a lot of them around the country yeah. um, and, and investigate the drug crimes. Now, when someone comes back and says, oh, it, your informant was just arrested for yeah, you know, committing another crime in in that space. Yeah, okay. So what? <laughs> so what? Right? I mean, they were yeah, that's no shock, right? Yeah, and, the, and the, the problem is that you they somehow think that they got it. They pulled it over on the agents that were working them. At no point in time did I ever think that Popoff was a good guy. I mean, he was a criminal. He knew he was a criminal. And honestly, when the when the when he found out that I had left the FBI and that I had moved over to Kroll, he actually called me at my house uh, and he thanked me. He thanked me for keeping him out of jail and, and um, not living that life where he would be a druggie and so on. And that was, those were his words. He has a family and so on. But, you know, he's still he, he, he's still a con man. He's still manipulating and so on. And uh, his his involvement in the FBI.gov email hack, less about the actual hack itself, more about gaining the money out of it. He was, His role was converting information into money. And he was very, very good at it. And in this case... You know, he, he took advantage of it. But what's not in that article is the fact that we had just, before I got removed and before the U.S. Attorney's Office out of Boston got all bent out of shape on this, we had just arranged for a meeting with him in a foreign country so that he could be arrested. He didn't know that there was an arrest warrant being issued. Uh, we hadn't told anybody about it because we were worried about it getting leaked and because of the, um, the, the nature of cybercrime as a whole, that most of that information can come up. But it never, it never came to fruition. We would have had him back, and if he was really involved, it would have, it would have worked out a different way. But say, lovey. So, so your name's cleared. You go on to have a successful career in the private sector, yeah. and we're running short on time. But I want to get to one thing that you you, you referenced to before. So, most recently, the company that you that you worked for unexpectedly decided to abandon their cybersecurity practice. I believe, and you can you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but that, that that left you unemployed for the moment. And you recently posted some of your thoughts and experiences about this on LinkedIn, on social media, to the tune of 125,000 views on just one of your posts, right? Which is pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible. People are interested in hearing what you have to say about this. So they're interested, I think, in, in how to navigate this cybersecurity job market, especially from someone like yourself who's been able to pivot and do a lot of different things and be successful at it. 
So what lessons have you learned from this experience and what kind of advice can you give to those in our audience who are looking to utilize their skill sets to find new opportunities in the cybersecurity industry? The best advice I can give at this point in time is being technical alone is not the skill set that needs to go out there. If you want to move into management, if you want to move into making things happen, just having those technical skills is is not it. Um, you need to understand people. You need to understand business. You need to understand how the decisions that you make or that you push forward from a security perspective, from an operations perspective, from a, a procedural perspective, have wider ranging impact on the company as a whole. The other side of it is nobody understands what cyber is. We have been so inundated with the idea of being afraid of it, being afraid that somebody's going to hack in and do something. And I ask this every time I go on a job interview and, and somebody's talking with me and usually a senior management, somebody who's not IT related or something. I say, so what if your credit card gets stolen? All right, it gets stolen tomorrow. Are you out anything? Did you lose anything? Uh, maybe a little bit of time. You know, uh, your former employer, George, you know, you go to Chase, you can get a new card issued to you the same day if your credit card is missing or something of that nature. Just walk into uh, many of the branches. Um, right. we, we've, there's a lack of understanding out there. Um, and there's other aspects that go into this. Privacy is about information security. It is not a legal thing. You do not need a lawyer to do it. Um, you need an individual who understands how information is, is collected, stored, and utilized. Um, and that's what I would recommend to any of the people that are out there looking for these types of roles. Um, I hear all the time. I wrote that LinkedIn piece. And uh, as of this morning, before we started this, uh, I was at 130,000 views for that one thing. Now, I only know 3,000 people on LinkedIn. So that's, that's saying quite a bit. But all the, but I, I, I've been trying to chronicle my, my interview or my, my, uh, my job search prospects here and let people know and open up it for discussion. And on average, I'm getting between 10 and 15,000 people looking at this stuff because we, we are unclear on where this world is going. The simple fact is this. There are no new threats. The threats are all the same. The basics of cybersecurity is to either gain access and take stuff or disrupt access so nobody else can do it. That's it. And you leave everything else on the side. Those are the two things that fo that are the focus of cybersecurity. Your job as a cybersecurity professional is to make sure that access is maintained for the people who need it and not for the bad guys, and that the systems cannot be so that the systems cannot get disrupted. Uh, that's data integrity and so and uptime and so on. Um, and that impacts a lot more than just being able to plug in a bunch of cables. So. Well, I couldn't have said it better, EJ. I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, glad to. Thank Thanks you so very much. much. I can't wait for to have you back. Uh, glad to come back. <laughs> All right, we got a lot to follow up on. So we've run out of time, folks. I, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.